0: What's up everyone, this is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp, you're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Avicel Garg is co-founder and partner on the investment team at Electric Capital. Avicel is a successful serial entrepreneur with executive experience at Google and Facebook, which acquired his previous company in 2012. In this conversation, we discuss Avicel's crypto thesis, decentralized finance, why smart contracts are undervalued, crypto infrastructure, and why decentralization is the natural end state. I really enjoyed this conversation with Avichal and I think you will as well. Before we get into this episode though, I wanna quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include, include a high yield interest account, a US dollar loan against your crypto collateral, and no fee trading on their crypto exchange. As an investor and someone who sits on the board, my favorite is the High Yield Interest Account, where you can earn up to 8.6% APY in an interest-bearing account. If you want to get started today, you can go to BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. And if you've got an account, you can sign up for the waitlist for the new credit card that they'll be launching that'll pay you rewards in Bitcoin rather than cash or airline miles. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. Next up is Choice. It's a new self-directed IRA product that I'm really excited about. If you're listening to this, you are likely part of the 7.1 million Bitcoin owners who have retirement accounts with dollars in them, but not Bitcoin. I was in that situation too. But now you can actually buy real Bitcoin in your retirement account. I'm talking about owning your private keys and using tax advantage dollars to do it too. It's an absolute game changer. A self-directed IRA product that allows you to buy Bitcoin, hold the private key, and use tax advantage dollars to do it. Head on over to retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Next up and lastly is the Rodman Law Group. They are dedicated to helping entrepreneurs realize their vision by helping them operate defensively in sectors where laws and regulations haven't caught up to the realities of the industry. I've been investing a long time now and I know that having a great lawyer, whether you're an investor or an entrepreneur, is one of the key things to success. The Rodman Law Group has been accepting Bitcoin as payment since 2017. They've also moved part of their treasury into Bitcoin. They get it. They understand the industry. So if you are looking for help on the legal side, go check out the Rodman Law Group. You can go to therodmanlawgroup.com slash POMP. Again, therodmanlawgroup.com slash pomp, you'll get a discount on the legal services for the first year. Again, the slash pomp, a law group that not only understands Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchain technology, but also are great lawyers and understand the law as well. So head on over to the slash pomp. All right, let's get in this episode with the virtual. I hope you guys enjoy this one. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got a visual here. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. For sure. Let's just jump into your background. Uh, you didn't work on crypto forever. So, what did you do before crypto? Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, Facebook, just tell us the whole story. Yeah. Uh, well, where did I grow up?
1: Um, I grew up, I was born in India. I grew up mostly in the Midwest, like Kentucky and Ohio, um, and came out west for school and um, spent most of my career as an entrepreneur. So, I started and sold two companies, um, second one to Facebook. Um, uh, and uh, worked on a bunch of stuff there, worked on products and, and some ad stuff and had a good time. Um, and uh, with that second company, actually the, the way I got into crypto with that second company, um, what we were doing was we were kind of like, a, uh, we were actually kind of like a TiVo in the cloud. So you give us the URL, we would copy whatever was on the other side of it and make a copy of it. But the way that we did that was we built all of this really amazing infrastructure uh, where we could control computers and all sorts of remote data centers. We kind of built our own little mini distributed system Um, and, and we're able to cost optimize that, um, and, and like buy remnant compute power all over the world. And, um, this was in like 2010, 2011. And my co-founder Curtis, uh, who's also my co-founder at Electric, uh, he'd worked on, uh, protein folding at home. He worked on like some distributed systems like 15 years ago. And, uh, he came across Bitcoin and said, Hey, I think this actually might solve the hardest problem we had, which was like, how do you get people to donate computational resources to, to this network, like this Bitcoin thing, might solve it. And so, uh, for a hot minute, we said maybe we should just become Bitcoin miners. So, in like 20, 2011, we just started like mining a bunch of Bitcoin. Um, this is like pre ASIC era, right? And so, um, 2010, 2011. And, um, and we were we were not pressing it. We were not visionaries. We didn't hang on to it. So, we like, you know, there, there was a period where it ran up to like, you know, 100 bucks or whatever. And, and we basically just sold it. We're like, this is insane. We're out um and uh but that was kind of like our original foray into it and then facebook bought all that ip and then we stuck around as hobbyists. and so we did a little bit of like ethereum and monero mining um and um and then we left in 2016 um and we're thinking about what to do and we're just spending all of our time in crypto personally um we were you know it it, it was kind of like the first thing that felt as raw as the internet felt to us um when we were kids where you just like go into a chat room and nobody knew how old you were, where you lived, you know, who you were, it was just like, you were a handle and you had some ideas and you like throw them out there. And if they made sense and like people engaged with you and, and if they didn't make sense, you got ignored. Um, and you could kind of had this like just amazing experience. I'm sure you remember this from like 2017, where you would, um, you'd show up in a, in a, in a chat room or telegram group or a signal or whatever. And, um, and it would be, you know, like this motley crew of people, like like the group of people in crypto. Even to today, I think it's like you know, Wall Street people. You have entrepreneurs. You have um, academics. You have touring award winners. You have professors that have dropped out of school. You have college kids. Um, you have like adult film stars. You 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 know, obviously you have some drug dealers. But like that's a really strange group of people to all be in one place um and you know like if you threw a dinner like if you threw a house party and that was who showed up you'd be like what the hell house party is this right like you got some porn stars and some drug dealers and like my college professor and like a bunch of college kids and like some wall street guys it's just be like a weird party so um, could <laughs> it could be fun it could be a blast right well it is a blast right i mean that's what makes crypto really fun it's just like all these people on the fringe kind of like showed up to the same party and um so we looked at it in twenty seventeen, and we were like, "This is so fun! We just want to do this all day." So we threw, we just threw down some desks at my place, and um, and Curtis would come over every day, and we would like be in these chat rooms, we would be reading white papers, and we were hacking on some code and writing some smart contracts, just having fun with it. And um, uh, kind of as the, as the last Bitcoin cycle was going up, all these VCs started reaching out to us um, because we we had done some companies, so a bunch of folks notes, and so they started reaching out saying, "Hey." Um, could you come in and, and talk to the partnership about this crypto stuff? Like, I remember you guys telling me about Bitcoin like five years ago, six years ago. Is it real this time? Should I like, should I buy some Bitcoin? What's ETH? What's an, what's an ICO? Uh, you know, like, uh, should I do one? Like, how do I, you know, should this company do one? And so we started doing all this education in 2017. And by the end of 2017, all these people, um, a bunch of the, the more traditional VCs who are phenomenal. I mean, these are like the world's best investors really quickly realized that crypto is different and they're not really set up to do it. Um, you have know, like regulatory challenges you don't want to go register with the SEC. Um, you know back then it's, it's a lot better now, but you know four years ago if you if you invest in some token network like what all of a sudden one day like a USB stick shows up with five million dollars on it, like what do you do with that? Does your associate just hang on to that at their house? Like that doesn't seem like a good idea, right? So they were like, okay, we don't want to do this. Can we just give you guys money? Like if I if I give you money of HL and Curtis, I know, not going to go buy some monero and like move to costa rica and like live that john mcafee life right so here take some money and like do what you do and just like you know we trust you guys and so that's that's actually how electric happened um so curtis and i joke we're kind of like accidental vcs we never we're like entrepreneurs that were just kind of doing our thing and a bunch of people said hey take some money and i i I mean anybody who's done a company is like if people show up with money and they're like hey take our money you should probably take it like we have been burned. we lived through 2008 and so like one of the number one lessons we learned is like, if people wanna give you money, you should probably take it. Um, and so that's how we started electric. And, and now we focus hundred percent on crypto um, and, and crypto networks. And, and uh have been fortunate to be able to do that for the
0: last few years. So uh, you are my favorite accidental VC, which goes right next to my favorite non-VC, which is Jeff Lewis at Bedrock, who, uh, who continues to tell everyone <laughs> that. So we've got accidental VCs, we have not a VC, and I'm sure that somebody will call us something new. Uh, talk, talk, talk through just a little bit about kind of your thesis on crypto in general, right? So th- there's some major themes that I think you guys have, but just when you sit down with an LP and you say, hey, you know, here's how we think about this space. Here's why we're excited about it. What, what do you share with them? Yeah. Um, so we, I mean, we're, we're engineers and like product people.
1: And so we came at it from like a really different perspective. I think there's this really valid, which we learned just, just by doing, um, worldview on this stuff, which is a little bit more top down, right. Which is like the, the money supply, fixed supply, Austrian school of economics, like all that kind of stuff that we sort of, um, you know, we, we bootstrapped up into to understand, but we come at it from like a much more bottoms up perspective. Like our, our take on it is, is through the lens of software. and so what you have here is in our opinion um the pendulum swinging away from the internet like the internet as we know it today which is like if you think about what the internet was designed to do or what it has become it really optimizes for like speed and throughput and scalability um and what we gave up were things like privacy um as we've now realized the ownership of our data um and handed over control to these like massive centralized organizations and you know these crypto networks and all of this distributed technology. All of a sudden, just says, "What happens if I do the opposite? Like instead of optimizing for speed and scalability and throughput, what if I optimize for you owning your own data? And what if I optimize for censorship resistance? And what if I optimize for um, privacy? Like what can I do? Um, and once you change the constraint set like that, um, it's, there's so, it's sort of that like Marshall McLuhan, the the medium is the message kind of a thing, right? It's like actually." the, once you change the constraints, people just become really creative and and you realize you can do totally different things. And so the question then is, okay, well, you have this technology stack that basically does this totally different set of things on the internet. It's the inverse of the internet. Um, so what is it good for? Um, and I think the failing that most people have had is they look at it and they say, oh, it's bad at all of these things. Instead of saying like, what is it good for? And so it reminds me a little bit of like, um, uh, the iPhone launch. Like I was, I was actually really fortunate. I slept outside Moscone to be able to get into that iPhone launch. And, and I watched Steve Jobs, like launch the iPhone. It was just a sick, just like an unbelievable, it was like masterclass in like how you do a product launch. It was unbelievable. Um, but the, the, the thing that I remember afterwards was like, I went back to work and I tried to like explain to people this thing that had just happened. Um, and I couldn't, I just like totally failed to explain it. And the criticisms were like, Hey, cause the Blackberry was so dominant at the time. The criticisms were like, Oh, it doesn't have a keyboard. And like, you know, like it it doesn't let me do this, or you know, the screen is really small or the internet connection is slow or there's no apps. Like there are all these criticisms. And what people totally miss were like, oh, well, it has a GPS on the device and has a pretty good camera. And the touch screen lets you just do totally different things. Um, and so I think if you look at the the sort of blockchain and crypto universe, the question is, what is all this stuff really good for? Like, where does privacy matter? Where is it okay if things don't happen in like 30 milliseconds, if it takes a couple of minutes? Like, where is that okay? And it turns out anything that deals with money, those are actually very reasonable trade offs to make. Like, you don't need to get a loan in like 30 milliseconds, especially if, like, you think about how you get a loan today from the bank, um, it might take you 30 days, it might take you 60 days. So, actually, like, 30 minutes to get a loan or three minutes to get a loan is still way better. It's orders of magnitude better than 30 days. Um, and so what you have is this like technology that's just good at a totally different set of stuff than the internet and a massive market, which has everything to do with money that the t- t- technology is just a perfect fit for. Um, and so to us, that's like, that's where all this starts. And so that's, you know, like our understanding of Bitcoin and our understanding of Ethereum really came kind of more like bottoms up. And then we sort of like learned about the economic side of it. And we're like, oh, this is kind of like digital gold. Um, but to us, it's like the technology that's always been the, the interesting wedge.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit just about kind of decentralization in general. I think that this is probably one of the underlying themes across, you know, a lot of what you guys are doing and, and really just the industry in general. And so it, there's kind of a couple schools of thought. One is, hey, Bitcoin is the king. Bitcoin will remain the king and everything will be built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, there's another school of thought that is um, we're going to take all of the ethos of Bitcoin around decentralization make um, kind of consensus. And we're going to go apply it in a million different ways with all sorts of different technology. Um, and go touch every other industry. Um, and then there's kind of a hybrid, which is like, well, Bitcoin's gonna be really important. And uh, that's likely to be the winner in the digital currency space. And then like, there's a bunch of other stuff, but they don't necessarily compete with Bitcoin. My guess is that you're in the third bucket, but one, I wanna make sure that that's true. And then just kind of explain like everything else other than Bitcoin uh, as you're sure. kind of thinking through decentralization these other protocols. Yeah, we're we're
1: absolutely in that third bucket. Like Bitcoin is the biggest and most important protocol today. It will be one of the biggest and most important things in this entire space. It's the gateway drug for a lot of people. It's like how you get into the space is, is you, you sort of get your head around Bitcoin. Um, and then once you start getting your head around Bitcoin, you start realizing that there, there are um, a set of things that Bitcoin's phenomenal for and great for. And then actually, if you sort of just tweak the consideration set a little bit or the constraints a little bit, you might be able to do more. And so, something as simple as like, yes, technically, you know, there's Bitcoin script and it's programmable. Um, not quite the way that that other platforms are, but like, wouldn't it be great if it were much easier for developers to come in and, and write these kinds of smart contracts? Um, and 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 that very naturally starts to lead you to something like Ethereum. Um, or hey, wouldn't it be great if actually um, you could um, tweak uh, some of the parameters and and make it much much better for like micropayments? Like ETH has has some challenges around gas fees. Um, and that might lead you to something like, um, like mobile coin, which is really optimized for payment flows. And so um, you can start, I think Bitcoin is really, really important, but we sort of think that there's going to be many, many thousands of tokens, there are going to be many, many thousands of protocols, um, and they're going to all sort of interact with each other. Um, and, and we're going to essentially recreate a lot of, in, in our opinion, what the internet was supposed to be. And, but it'll take 20 to 30 years. Like I think we're, we're like in the first, first inning of this. Um, so I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, I think that the sort of natural one that we, we spend a lot of time on these days is, um, uh, is essentially the smart contract universe. Like, you know, I think one of the most fundamental things here that most people, even people in the space, uh, including ourselves, I think have not really fully internalized is what it means for computers to be able to own money. Right. So like, if you start from this place of, um, you know Bitcoin is money like it, it, the, the bits themselves are the value um that's kind of a crazy concept right that's it's a bearer instrument that that means you know unlike your bank account when you go to your bank um, that's a representation of money like you log in and then you got to go to the bank it's really an IOU from the bank um, and um, which is really it's funny because then that's an IOU from the government um, but uh, you know bitcoin is different because you own the bits and if you own the bits, you know, you own the money. And the way that you assert ownership over the bits is with a private key, um, which is just another set of bits. And so very quickly, you, you realize, well, doesn't that mean that like a piece of code can create a wallet and, and have its own private key? And it never tells me what the private key is. And then I can send money into the wallet. And actually, now that piece of code essentially custodies the money, it owns the money. Um, and that's a pretty fundamental breakthrough. Because what that means is that, computers can be counterparties to humans and there doesn't need to be a human on the other side. Or what it means is that actually computers, like machines can pay machines. And so once you start playing that out, you're like, wait, so that means like you could do really crazy stuff. Eventually things like you have a self-driving car driving down the street and enough of them line up and they like all decide to pay the stoplight to turn green. And so you can do like microtransactions and actually now like all the lights in the city would turn um, green kind of at the right you know at the right times and you know, like your traffic would flow more swiftly and actually you'd be gathering taxes exactly for the streets where there's the most usage right like th- that kind of stuff you're like oh that could actually now happen and there need to be no humans in the loop like you just the way you go to the gas station maybe you like plug in your car to charge and like using your mobile app you like fill up the wallet on your car's um, wallet right um, that kind of crazy stuff can, can start to happen um, but in the short term um, you start saying well you know what are these things really good for and in our opinion, Um, going back to this idea of like money, um, smart contracts are, are this really interesting thing because what they do is they take like a quadrillion dollars of stuff that's happening in the world and allow you to express it in code. And so if you think about anything that has to do with money, right, a will or a trust or an escrow or a REIT or a mortgage or a security or a derivative, like literally a quadrillion dollars of the world is here's a pile of money. And here's a bunch of rules around that money. Like, you know, Anthony has access to it. Avicel does not but like in six months, a virtual has access to it and Anthony doesn't. So like in, in some future time horizon, like, please execute these instructions. And today we just do that with like spreadsheets and legal documents and email. And like, that's actually how all of that stuff works today. And so along comes something like Ethereum, which is just like, well, I can own the money. And now you can just write those instructions out in code. And it's deterministic. Like I can tell you exactly what the code is going to do and there's no way to change it. Um, and that's that's literally the one thing that computers are better than humans at, is like deterministically executing instructions. So. To us, it's just like you know, literally a quadrillion dollars of stuff is going to get eaten up by these kinds of, uh, of tools. Um, how it happens and stuff, you know, I think it's going to take a decade to play out. We're still in the really early days. I mean, we very well, you know, using a Facebook analogy, we very well may be in the, the like, MySpace era of this, where we kind of are starting to see that this is possible, but actually like, we haven't realized how it's going to go mainstream yet. Um, or maybe Ethereum is are in this Facebook, we know, we'll know in 10 years. Um, but you know, I think, I think we haven't yet really figured out how this stuff is going to change everybody's lives. And it is, I think it's going to change everybody's lives. I think it's going to touch 7 billion people.
0: So I completely agree with you. How do you think about like, let's just take smart contract platforms in general, right? So I think Ethereum is by far the leader there. Um, there's a bunch of people working on bringing smart contract functionality to Bitcoin, uh, but then there's also you know a gazillion other, it seems, uh, smart contract platforms uh, that are popping up that really, you know, Ethereum killers, competition, what, however you want to uh, kind of label yeah. them. But how do you think about this? Is it a one smart contract platform to rule them all? Is there coexistence? Uh, is it literally every protocol Will have to have smart contract compatibility, and so uh, it's less about like which one is the smart contract platform, and it's just like at what point does a protocol add that functionality? Just like how, how do you think about that among the different pro- protocols? Yeah, I think um,
1: it's a it's a really good question, and it's a tough question. And, and there's a different question. There's like a slightly there's two different questions there. There's the question of like what happens in the world, uh, and what do you think is going to happen in the world? And then there's the like investor variant of that question, which is like okay, well then how do you construct a portfolio? You know, to minimize your downside but maximize your upside, and you might do something slightly different. Like you might be really convinced that Ethereum is going to win, but as a as a you know, that might be like a ninety percent chance. You're like okay, I just think Ethereum is going to win, but as an investor, you might still take a bunch of positions into things, you know, to just in case, right? From a from a return perspective, it might still make sense to do that. So to that first question, like I think the way it's going to likely play out is it's going to be winner takes most because the network effects are real. you know, developer network effects, integration network effects, fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, regulatory network effects—like these are all things that are moats around a layer one protocol. And Ethereum far and away has the lead there, but it's still very early days. Um, and then I think you'll get like number two, number three, number four. Um, and depending on how you think about it as an investor, that could still be a fantastic opportunity. So if you look at like social networking, which is another network effect-driven um, sort of uh, business, um, Facebook was obviously the big winner, but LinkedIn did fantastically. Twitter is really important. TikTok is really important. Snap is really important. Like you, you actually have, if the market size is like large enough, it's, it, you know, it's multiple billions of people, then odds are you can have second and third and fourth place winners that are still really, really massive. Um, and so I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, you know, winner take all. I think it's winner take most, but actually we're in such early days here that actually from an investor perspective, kind of having, having a few different bets, you'll, you'll probably still do really well if you pick well. Um, and then each of those networks will specialize in the same way that, that media companies or that social media companies or other network effect things do. Um, and so you might get one thing that's sort of the, the money chain, which might be like ETH. You might get something um, that's much better for NFTs because like, you know, scalability is such a challenge and gas fees are so high that it like crowds, crowds out a lot of non-fungible token use cases. Um, and so maybe that just moves somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, I think it's TBD, how, who wins and how they win. Um, but I think that my best guess is that's how it'll be is like winner take most, um, and then specialized chains for, for different use cases that are optimized to, to meet the needs of that sort of crowd of people.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And, you know, the beauty of it is the market will ultimately decide, but I think that there's, that's a pretty rational view of the world. Uh, let, let's flip around. You we've talked a lot about kind of the technology infrastructure and kind of how that plays out um, and, and really where investors are thinking about capital and, and returns. But how does this look for users in terms of how does the crypto infrastructure kind of change the products and services and, and goods that we interact with on a daily basis? I think people understand uh, the argument for Bitcoin as money and that not being kind of fiat or or kind of in the traditional uh, technology format. But what else, like, how do you think about the the actual everyday life of a uh, person somewhere in the world changing because of this crypto infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's going to be kind of like the phone in a sense, which is to
1: say that um, it's going to change everything, but you will stop thinking about it as a separate thing. So like there was a time when people were doing mobile apps where like investors would, would see pitch decks or founders would go in and pitch and be like, we're a mobile app company, right? And here's what we do. And, and like, if you did that today, you, your investors would just be like, well, like, of course you are like, what else would you be, right? Like, of course you're a mobile company, right? Um, and so I think that will, that's kind of how it will happen. So the question is like, what are the use cases where people are going to use these things? And they won't even realize <laughs> that it's quickly behind the scenes, right? And then one day, five or 10 years from now, Like every company will just have this and it'll just make sense to use these primitives. And then you won't even call them crypto companies. It'll just be, that's just like an app or that's just a company, right? So a really concrete example would be, you know, like Facebook is doing this, uh, what used to be called Libra is now called Diem, which is the idea that you could have this this way to move uh, money really, really quickly um, between people all over the world. And of course, that makes sense inside something like Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp. Um, and in a lot of other use cases. And so like Shopify is part of that network um, and then try to make that happen. And they have all sorts of challenges. Um, but you can imagine if they launch that, like all of a sudden, a billion people would be moving money around the world using crypto infrastructure, because that's actually a better way to do this stuff. It's actually like the 2020s computer science version of how do I move money around the world? And sort of like 1970s infrastructure, which is kind of how we do it today. Um, and so I think that's how it plays out. Or like another good, good way this is, I think, going to play out is like through the creator economy. Like creators are, you know, musicians and artists, and um, you know all these people that are just so creative about how they're using media. Um, and they're they you're already seeing starting to see it happen, right? Like, what does it what does it mean for a musician to like make music but retain the rights to that music, right? Um, is there a way for them to essentially have like the the rights be digital and be guaranteed that they own them, but perhaps be able to resell them? Or what does it mean for a creator to uh, be able to like Uh, raise money, right? So uh, creators are really interesting. Creators are like the new small business. Like 15 years ago, if you were a SaaS business and you went to a bank and you're like, hey, look, we have really good ARR. Will you lend us money? The banks were like, no, I don't. That's not a, that's like not a physical asset. How do I lend against that? They didn't understand this concept of recurring revenue. How do you do that as like a YouTube creator or a TikTok creator today? Can you go to a bank and be like, hey, I have 18 million fans or followers like please lend me money so I can like hire staff and make better content and like monetize better. Like no bank is going to give you money. Right. Uh, Cause they don't understand that asset. Um, but your fans might, right. And so maybe what you can do is like issue a token and your fans will all buy that token. Um, and if you're, if they find you when you're, when you're just starting out, uh, and there's a limited number of tokens and those tokens give you benefits, like you get to be a part of a, 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 an invite-only fan club, like maybe those tokens appreciate in value over time. Um, and so when that when that creator is really popular, then those tokens are worth a lot of money. Um, and so, you know, if that you get to, and, and creators are playing with this kind of stuff today, right? It's, it becomes for the creator, like a financing mechanism and for the fans, a way to like support the people that they create, care about, but also potentially participate in the like financial upside of identifying people so you can become like a talent scout. That's totally gonna happen. Um, And it it very well will will happen on crypto infrastructure. It's just like people may not realize that that's what they're doing behind the scenes. Right. So I think that's that's kind of how it plays out is like five over the next five years, there will just be some killer use cases. um, And and the average person won't even realize that what, what they're using is crypto.
0: And so those killer use cases, I think I separated them into two buckets, right? One is like, hey, uh, Amazon already has gift cards, and so that's a version of a quote unquote token. It's got a different technology form factor, but uh, it unlocks certain types of behavior and certain value for that ecosystem. The other would be yeah. something like, hey, Uber wouldn't have been possible without mobile phones with GPS in it, and therefore there was a technology leap, and then that unlocked, you know, a whole bunch of services, not just Uber, but but many like it that use that GPS functionality. And so it almost sounds like you're basically making the argument like both will happen right It's not a binary world like some of it is just taking existing things in the world and now using tokens and, and protocols and smart contracts to now put them in this new technology form factor, but also because there is innovation around the technology that we can unlock brand new use cases uh, and brand new things in the world that we haven't seen before because of that technology leap yeah, that's right and and I think um,
1: you know there, there are like a couple of different ways to look at that so um the historical analog is like, if you go back, I, I went back and um, read a bunch of articles from like the early 90s when the internet was just getting off the ground and it's, they're hilarious. I totally, if anybody is like, uh, like a student of, of history, you should totally go back and read these articles because like you see them trying to explain this new thing, the internet. And they're just like, to, to, to now to us, it's just like so obvious, but they're just uh, struggling. And so you have these like hilarious videos and stuff of people trying to explain the internet and, and the prevailing wisdom at one point was once people got their head around the idea that, that the internet was like the information superhighway, the natural conclusion was, oh, well, of course, this is going to be great for CNN and the New York Times. Like they're going to be just huge businesses. And Walmart is totally going to be able to sell stuff online and be like an even bigger company. And in retrospect, you're like, oh, that was totally wrong. Uh, like the real winners were Facebook and YouTube and, and TikTok and Twitter and Amazon. It was not, you know, the the incumbents. Um, and, and the reason is that um, like, Adopting this technology natively and using it natively um, requires you to change the human organization around the technology, right? So like at Amazon, the people that make all the decisions are the engineers, not the brand managers. It's not the guy who has the relationship with Procter and Gamble that gets to make the call. Um, And so the the question in in crypto land is, yeah, like all of this stuff gets baked into existing companies, Shopify and Facebook and and whatever else. Um, But like what does a crypto native organization look like? And like, what use cases do, does that infrastructure unlock that you just couldn't do before? Because if you play that forward, I mean, Amazon was sort of an obvious one, like in the sense that like you could see e-commerce was going to happen. Um, but a lot of the really biggest businesses that came out of the internet were the things that were really counterintuitive. They like, they just didn't make sense at the time. Like it's hard to imagine now, but like Facebook and Airbnb and Uber just like made no sense at the time. They actually, you know, like they're basically... The, the biggest businesses on the internet are like basically all of the things you're not supposed to do, right? Like you're not supposed to talk to strangers. You like shouldn't get into a stranger's car. You should like shouldn't go to a stranger's house. Uh, like really, you're going to take everything about your life, like where you live and who you are and who you're married to and like what your kids look like and put it into a public database where anybody can find you. Like, these are all the things you're not supposed to do. And they're like the biggest businesses. Right. Um, so the question I, I sort of think through is like, what is the wave of stuff where it's going to look really obvious in hindsight, but in the moment you're like, that looks batshit. Like, why would anybody do that? Um, and that's really hard, but I think those are going to be actually the really big thing. So there's like this set of obvious stuff that we just talked about, like, you know, mobile payments. Um, but I think there's going to be just be some really, really wild stuff that I don't think we've like fully scratched the surface of. Um, that that's going to start to happen. And the, the other thing that is important to realize is like, that takes time, you know, like, we didn't, we didn't start to see the counterintuitive stuff on the internet, in some sense, really start to hit until like 15 years later, right? Like the internet really started, let's say, 1990-ish. Um, like the really counterintuitive stuff was like 2005 is like people were ready for it. Um, or like even with the iPhone, right? Like the iPhone happened and the first version of the apps were like skeuomorphic. It was like leather and paper and wood, right? It's just because like it was touched. So we're like, oh, we're used to like touching wood. So we should make it look like wood. Um, or, you know, have like a GPS. And so we could take like the desktop maps and say like, Oh, okay. I can put a map on a phone. Now we could like port it over. Um, but it literally took like, I think Uber was 2010. And so that means it took about three years of people playing around on the iPhone for people to figure out that like the killer app was not that I could go somewhere, but it was that like other stuff could come to me. You had to like turn the idea on its head. And that was actually the killer app for GPS. Um, and so like, I think we're, we're still like in the very early days of this exploration and it might, it very well might take like three to 10 years for us to stumble into a bunch of like really counterintuitive stuff, which just turns on its head, the idea of like any of what, what we think is possible today. And so that, that's like the really fun stuff. I mean, you know, this too, is like a venture investor. It's like the stuff that you like, you walk away from a meeting and you're just like, okay, that was either the stupidest thing I've ever heard, or that was brilliant. And I don't know what, right? Like, I don't know. It could
0: be either one and I don't know. Um, and that's like the really interesting stuff in my opinion. So, one of the things that the venture capital community has figured out is like sometimes the best investment strategy is like, I'm going to go find the smartest people that are going after yeah. the biggest markets. I'm just going to give them money. And like, why do I think I'm smarter than them? Like, they'll just figure it yeah. out. Uh, yeah. When it comes to crypto and decentralization, is the team or the person less important because you're now talking about a decentralized system. They don't have control and, and kind of there's all these you know, new frameworks or paradigms, or actually is it still the same thing when you think about allocating capital? Like you're just looking for really, really smart people going after unique problems or hard problems. And that's kind of a, a, a big um, you know, milestone or, or thing that you look for when you're actually investing. Yeah. So I think
1: at a high level, it's a great question because, um, well, because I think the real answer is nobody knows yet. Actually, right, and we'll find out in ten years. That being said, I think we tend to think that that value creation follows great people, and so just like give people who give the best people the most money, and they'll do they'll do great things with it. Um, that being said, I think the challenge is that the what like how do you define great? Like, what does it mean to be great in crypto versus what does it mean to be great on the internet? And um, you know, on the internet, you had people like Jeff Bezos or Travis Kalanick or, or Mark Zuckerberg create just huge amounts of value, um, and they had a certain archetype. There was a certain profile there. There was a certain set of skills, and I think what's interesting about crypto is that um, the skill set is very different. Um, and so you have brilliant people like Vitalik, um, but he operates totally differently from Zuck, as, as you know, right? Like, um, and, and, and there's this sense of like. Um, What is that set of skills that it's actually going to take to be successful? And and like a bunch of the people that move over, I think from the internet are are, are probably likely to fail, even even if they're super successful, because it goes back to this idea of like, what does it mean to be a crypto native entrepreneur? Um, So it's actually, I I would say it's probably the hardest part of my job, actually. It's just like, you you meet these really, really brilliant people, but you're not sure if there's like founder market fit. You're like, is this the kind of person that can succeed in this market? And that's sort of a process that I think all all the investors and all the founders and everybody's kind of trying to figure out is like, who are the kinds of people that can really be successful here and why? Um, but I mean, I think you can look at somebody like Vitalik and you're like, I don't know, would he have been successful like going through Y Combinator? Maybe. Um, but he's clearly, clearly the right type of person to be to be operating a crypto network and, and be sort of you know, the steward of that.
0: Yeah. Talk a little bit about uh, conversations with uh, limited partners or investors in your fund uh, and how that sentiment has shifted over the years in terms of uh, 2017, 2018. People sound like they were just like literally throwing money at you, like, hey, solve my problem. I don't understand this. And then kind of how that uh, maybe went through a trough and then has uh, has recovered a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's yes, Yeah, it has. and in, in a funny way, uh, I think for crypto, like COVID was a great catalyst, like COVID, COVID was tailwind for Netflix and Amazon, but also COVID was great tailwind for Bitcoin, um, in part because all of these things that Bitcoin people have been saying and crypto people have been saying, like, hey, look, the, the money printing is just going to get worse. They're not going to dial it down. Um, <laughs> right. And like, this is going to get really bad. And like, you know, um, we don't trust our institutions anymore, and like this, there there are real problems here. Like censorship is a problem. Like all of these things that, that crypto people have been saying for years and years, and and we all sounded like loonies. All of a sudden, the LPs that had heard these people talking about these things sat up one day and were like, "Wait, maybe you're right." Um, and that basically happened in like March, April, and I think that was that was a pretty pivotal moment. But even even before that, you know, I think you have to kind of break down like institutional investors into like what kinds of institutional investors and there are like large family offices or ultra high net worths, um, there are endowments, there are pension funds, um, you know, there are sovereign wealth funds. And so there's a spectrum there. Um, and you know, like 2017, the people who were, who were kind of clued into crypto, I would say were essentially ultra, ultra high net worths, you know, like billionaires and some, some family offices. And kind of where, where we moved, like where the dominoes have moved to now is like the endowments and like a very small number of very forward thinking pension funds in um, corporate treasuries, you know, folks like Square or MicroStrategy. Um, and um, but we're not yet at, at like sovereign wealth funds. We're not yet at central banks. Like we're not there yet. Um, and so that's kind of where the line is. And I think, um, you know, the conversation, the the big shift basically has been that every time, like the best way to, in my opinion, to like have LP set up and take note is if the person to their left just made a bunch of money. And so like what ended up happening in like 2016, 2017 was a bunch of billionaires had some friend or a friend of a friend who was like a you know hundred millionaire, and like that guy became a billionaire. And then they looked over and they're like, wait, that guy's a billionaire. Like, how did that guy become a billionaire? And they started looking at what he's doing, and and there was crypto in the mix. And then so all those people started buying in. And then when those people started buying in, the really large family offices started to look over. And then once the really large family offices started to look over, um, you know, endowments and pensions started to look over. And so you kind of have this like domino effect. Um, and we're just sort of like. At this point, it's like we're, we're far enough along that I it think it's the rest of the donors are clearly going to fall. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say is I think one of the big learnings for us too is um, even inside every sort of group of LPs, there are some people that are just way more rational about it than others. Um, and so I've been really impressed to, to the degree to which there are these like really smart, ultra rational investors. Uh, and when you meet them, how quickly they get it. And like the three things that those guys are all into now, that all of those people are into, these like hyper rational, smart institutional folks, and they get um, is crypto, marijuana, and esports. It's like really interesting. Like they get those things in a way that like a lot of other institutional investors don't. Um, and so you know I, I, if, um, if if we were if we were talking to the LPs like three or four years ago, I think we looked like crazy people. And like today, you have the same conversation, and people are like, oh man, like you guys are you, you have like seen the future. It's like pretty dramatic how quickly it changed too.
0: I, I always laugh and say you can go talk to like any kid between the age of like maybe I don't know 15 and 25 and be like, hey, are electric vehicles going to be a thing? And they're like, Of course every car's gonna be electric. They're like, yeah. hey, well, is you know, digital money yeah. gonna be a thing? Like, of course. Like, what are you talking about? You know, is esports gonna be a thing? Of course. Yeah. And so there's this element of like, uh, when I talk to a bunch of institutional investors, a lot of them will literally yeah. reference like, my kid is all into this, right? And like it, it's driving them. They hear them talking about it. And for whatever reason, they have this inclination, like, my kid's probably right, my kid knows nothing about investing, but like my kid's probably right. Uh, And so I do think that that has a big impact though, right? That's that's
1: hilarious. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a fantastic investment thesis. You should just like do what the young people are doing. If you just like bet long on that, you'll probably, you'll probably do the right thing because all these things are going to
0: happen and they're totally right. The other thing that I keep uh, keep going back to as well is, uh, I've been fortunate enough, as I'm sure you have as well, uh, to talk to some of the most successful investors in the world. Um, and most of these folks are considered the most successful because not only have they had great returns, but they've been doing it for a very long period of time. And so just naturally, with experience comes age, right? And so they, they end up being in their 50s, 60s, sometimes even older. And In almost every single situation, they have somebody who is younger than them that has gotten them in, right? So whether it is their child, a friend, you know, whatever it is. And so it's always fascinating to see that uh, in those conversations, they'll say something like, oh, you know, my kid's been like every single time I see him, like he's always just pounding away at me about this stuff. But then all of a sudden they see market prices move and they say, wait a second, like maybe I should spend more time here. Maybe actually this is the right kind of thesis. And so how do you think that that plays out not only from a Bitcoin standpoint, because everyone's paying attention to Bitcoin, CNBC, all the the media organizations pay attention to the Bitcoin price. But what about everything else, right? When everything else starts to kind of move up, does that further unlock even more capital than just the Bitcoin price? Or do you think institutions yet aren't paying attention to like the things outside of Bitcoin necessarily? And so we still got some way to go until they start to really understand understand the rest of it.
1: Yeah, it's very early days for anything that's not Bitcoin. It's, um, you know, when we talk to, to institutions, I would say the most forward-thinking ones look at Ethereum and they think it's going to be a thing, kind of the way they thought Bitcoin was probably going to be a thing in the 2017 move, and they have not yet made the decision to move into it. Um, where we've had lots of conversations with institutions that are trying to figure out how to own Bitcoin directly. You know whether or not they've actually pulled the trigger. They're they're like at that point now. Like the investment committees are okay with it, Um, but nobody, no, very 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 few people are there with Ethereum, Um, and that's just Ethereum. That's not even trying to touch on like DeFi or any other alternative tokens or you know thinking about things beyond Ethereum. Um, So it's still very very early days when it comes to like institutions coming into the space. And and um, and to your point, yeah, a lot of the times there is usually one person and they almost. I would say 90% of the time, not always, but like 90% of the time, they tend to skew you younger. Um, it's kind of like that that saying, it's like um, things that are created when you're like 65 don't make sense uh, and are like unnatural. Things that are created when you're 35 are uh, you know innovative and things that are you know created when you're five are just like the natural order of the thing and you have know, the world um, to your point earlier, right? So like um, for, for like a 15 year old today, like all this stuff is just like how the world is gonna be. Um, but yeah, I think most institutions are not quite there yet. I mean, I think the other thing that, that's worth noting here is like, um, they're not irrational, right? Like these are really smart people. And part of what happens behind the scenes is like how these decisions get made. And so like, I think, like I didn't know this before I became an investor is like the, the process by which an institution decides to make an investment decision, A, is a pretty heavy lift. The bigger the organization, the heavier the lift but also B, it's really hard to unwind. And so you got to get the entire organization there. Um, and there's a lot of like um, principal agent risk mixed in, which is, you know, like, are am I going to be the person that puts my neck out to do this? And like, why am I going to do that inside this organization? And so you either have to have people who really, really, really believe, um, or there has to be some sort of catalyst. And, and this is where I think like COVID really changed a lot. Like everybody sort of realized that if we're going to a zero interest rate world, in, in usD dollars like the usD denominated world like your, the euro is already there um then if you have like yield targets if you're trying to make seven percent a year like how are you going to do that um and so all of a sudden people are open to the idea because kind of they have to be um and so I think it's inevitable but yeah it's still very early days for anything that's that's not Bitcoin
0: is there anything that you think uh, maybe is getting tons of attention and, and a lot of people are flocking, whether it's uh, individual like intellectual capital or financial capital, that maybe you're not as bullish on or, or something that you think that you know might not actually be sustainable? Yeah, well, I think these things all go through like a hype cycle, and I think hype cycles
1: are actually really important. Like, I think a lot of people think hype cycles are, are a bad thing, but I think they're necessary. It's just like you have to get the hype cycle because the overinvestment is what allows you to invest into stuff that needs to like go mainstream or cross the chasm. And if you don't get the overinvestment, the thing is never gonna accrue enough capital or enough attention or enough people to like really make sense. Um, and you see that there's like this you know, this whole, like if, if anybody wants to go read Carlotta Perez, there's like a whole economic theory around like why you need bubbles basically. Um, and it's an important part of like innovation. Um, and, and the thing that I think might be in a little bit of a, of a hype cycle right now is essentially decentralized infrastructure. Um, and in part it's, I think, you know, the, the people who are forward thinking developers have experienced this themselves. Like developers have been experiencing this pain of like, oh, I used to build on Twitter and then Twitter shut down the API on me, or I used to build on Facebook and then Facebook shut down the API on me and killed my business. Or, you know, we just, we just saw this last week, right? Like setting aside the politics of, of it all, it kind of doesn't matter, you know, what you think of parlor, the fact that like Amazon can just shut that thing off and Apple and Google can just kick it out from the app store. All of a sudden, I think the world kind of woke up and said, wait a second, this like five companies control whether or not you exist. And if they decide to take you out from the internet, like you don't exist. Um, and developers have been feeling that pain for a long time. And so now everybody sort of, I think, is starting to understand that the pain is acute. I kind of I kind of liken it to the Bear Stearns moment in 2008, where like, if you were paying attention, Bear Stearns was a really big deal. Um, but the Lehman moment was like a year later. And so I think we're now building up to this, like bigger and bigger stuff is going to happen. And, and the world is waking up to the idea that Literally you know, five to 10 companies control whether or not you exist on the internet and the internet is like your life. Um, And so all of that is now a problem statement, but I don't think the technology is quite where it needs to be to actually solve the problem yet. It's getting there, but it's not quite there yet. And so I suspect what's gonna happen is those things are maybe where DeFi was in like 2015, uh, where a lot of really smart people are gonna pour a lot of energy into it, which is great, but it's not gonna quite work the way that we need it to work yet. Um, and then there'll be sort of a hype cycle around that and probably flames out. And then on the other side of that is where this stuff really starts to work. Um, but I suspect that's like, you know, three, four, five years out. I, I don't think it's like in the yeah. next 12 months, all of a sudden you can just go truly decent. Like you can't, I think it's gonna be hard to build like a truly decentralized Twitter that just works in the next 12 months.
0: Yeah. And and it feels like we're now getting to the point where technologists understand like centralization is a risk, but maybe the users don't yet. And so uh, I keep talking about like the develop it's the developer's responsibility to build decentralized systems because the users don't care but at some point in the future, users will care, right? It's kind of like encryption. Like now users do care about encryption, but uh, maybe 10 years ago, like that wasn't as big of a deal. And so if you wanted to protect your users, you put encryption in, but they weren't necessarily demanding it. And it just feels like that we're getting pulled in that direction. Um, What's kind of your thought process around like the regulatory response to all this. So like, you know, you and I sit down and we're we're super bullish and we get really excited and we're like, Oh my God, Bitcoin's going to like, you know, have this great ascent. Uh, There's going to be all these decentralized systems. Like, you know, the internet is the, the king. Um, and there's a lot of regulators who are like, okay, crazy guys, like chill out. Uh, that world's never going to happen. Right. Like we're, we do not want that to happen. Um, it, like who wins essentially. Right. Or, or, or is it actually, there's coexistence. Like maybe there isn't such a competition. It is literally just coexistence. Like how do you think through that?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and have spent actually a fair amount of time talking to, um, to regulators and policy folks and, and, um, and people in the intelligence community as well. Um, and law enforcement, and and I think um, you know if you have to sort of think through it, I think game theoretically, which is like who are the actors and what are their incentives and what does that mean? And I think if there were only two actors in the mix, if it was just like the U.S. government and and the crypto people, it would probably play out sort of straightforwardly, which is like hey, we don't really like this, like you know maybe we'll shut it down. But there's a third actor in the mix here, which is the Chinese government, and I think the Chinese government actually is the like hyper rational like. Amazing. I mean, like, they're so impressive in how they manage to use technology. Um, you know, again, setting aside what you think they do with the technology, just their ability to use technology is—they're—they're they're the best government in the world at this. And so, what are they doing? Well, what the Chinese government has done is they basically said, you know what, we're going to let the supply chain for Bitcoin exist here. Like, yeah, make the ASICs—that's great. Uh, run them here. Like, run your mining pools here. That's awesome. We love that. Um, but you know what? We don't really love people buying a lot of this stuff. So we're going to make sure that like, that's pretty much under our control. And so they hit this like perfect sweet spot where they like, have influence over this stuff. They're building capacity. Like um, President Xi said, we're going to invest a bunch in blockchain infrastructure. We're going to subsidize that. We have the blockchain network happening. They're investing in their DCEP system, their digital currency electronic payment system, which is a blockchain-based uh, central bank digital currency. And then they're going to take that which now lets them have truly digital cash, and they're going to push it through the belt and road. So they're investing trillions of dollars, um, you know, to to for these strategic initiatives in developing markets, um, from, you know, all the way from Singapore to Sri Lanka to to um, East Africa into the Gulf and into Europe, and they're just going to push it through there. And so all of a sudden, you know, if you're doing any kind of international trade, if you're doing any kind of goods transfers, if you're doing any financial transactions, all of a sudden. You have this way better system now. It's not like the old school 1970s wire system um, that takes you know, weeks for your cash to show up where you need because it has to go through three hops and three different people need to settle along the way. Uh, it's instant. Um, and that's pretty compelling, right? If you're trying to do business, that's pretty compelling. And if your largest trading partner says, hey, why don't we use this, this platform, that's even more compelling. And so that's kind of what's happening. That's the third actor is now the, the Chinese government could actually become the platform on which like, international trade is settled. Um, and if you're the U.S. government, that is actually a much bigger challenge than crypto. Like if if I'm if I'm the U.S. government, if I'm Treasury, if I'm um, you know FinCEN, if I'm um, the CIA, like anybody in government actually needs to be thinking about how how do we operate in a world where today one of the best tools for U.S. national security is the fact that the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world, and um, if that gets weakened, and there's an entire system that allows countries to circumvent that what does that mean for us and that is a pretty existential threat so you say okay well that's a given that's happening that's not like crypto you know paranoia like literally you can just go read like that's literally the the Chinese government is very transparent about this um and so if that's what's happening what do you do if you're the government if you're the U.S. government and you kind of have two options you can either try to like compete with them head-on um and if you try to do that I think you fail like healthcare.gov, you know, the, the, the history of the US government writing technology in like the last 20 years is not good. So they're gonna try and they should, like you should modernize these, modernize these systems, but you're already seven years behind and you don't have a great track record. So I don't think you win if you do that. But how do you win? If you're a startup person, like you immediately start thinking about like startup 101 is just like what is the judo move here? Like, what is the thing that you can do? That the other person just can't do structurally. Right? So, like Snap won um, in large part because they just did the opposite of Facebook. Like, you open up the phone and it was a camera instead of a feed. There was no permanent identity. Um, you know, it was all ephemeral, and Facebook is entirely about you know, permanent identity. It's just like they did the opposite of Facebook in so many ways. And that's why Facebook has such a hard time with it. Um, and so, what do you need to do if you're the US government? I would argue you actually need to embrace crypto because crypto is the one thing that the Chinese government will not do. Like, they don't want capital to leave China and, and not be in their control. They don't want to give away privacy. Um, and crypto is about privacy and self sovereignty and, censor, and censorship resistance. Like, all of the things that make crypto work are all of the things that the Chinese government doesn't want to do. So, I think if you're the US government, you like double down on crypto, actually. You like really embrace it and you say, this is actually our offensive tool. Like, we're going to do all the stuff we need to do to upgrade our infrastructure and, and try to compete. Um, but let's like actually embrace US backed stablecoins. Like, let's get USDC. Um, and cello dollars and and Libra, you know, or DM dollars or whatever. Let's just get that everywhere. Let's get that into the developing world because that's that's reinforcing the network effect of the U.S. dollar. Um, let's actually embrace Bitcoin. Let's actually make sure that all the crypto inf- you know innovation that's happening happens in American companies and happens in American banks and happens in American, you know, happens onshore basically instead of pushing it out to to regions of the world where where other governments have more influence. So. It's maybe a little counterintuitive on the surface, but I actually think like the game theory optimal move for the U.S. government is to double down on crypto and really embrace it, because that's actually how you can you can have a shot against competing against the Chinese government. Without which, I think I think you're really going to struggle if you U.S. government. And I think, and at least in my conversations, um, I think there are enough people in government that actually get that. So there's actually a, a contingent of people inside the U.S. government at, across all
0: of these different groups that get that and are trying to make that case right now. I could not agree more. I think that uh, the whole idea of like the government's going to ban it is the exact kind of uh, intuitiveness that ends up not coming to fruition. And uh, it's the counterintuitive move of, no, the first countries to embrace this actually win. Um, And although the United States is very good at sometimes getting in its way, uh, I do think that that is where we're going to end up. And and you're you know, alluding to everything from there's congressmen, there's senators, there's people up and down the uh, U.S. government that I think are, uh, are, are kind of starting to wake up to this. And, uh, as somebody said to me, um, in a very blunt way, they said, look, uh, all old people die eventually and they're replaced by younger people. And so the odds that the, a president in the future is a Bitcoiner, uh, or a crypto person is like very high. And that's just uh, a yeah. maybe 20 years from now, but like, That happens at some point. Right. It's just naturally, if you grew up like there's people who now are assuming positions of power and influence in the uh, government that grew up with a cell phone in their hand. Right, and they're yeah. just starting, and so twenty years from now, like almost everyone will be that way. Um, so, yeah. so it's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. Before we get into the rapid fire questions to wrap up, um, what is kind of your sweet spot from an investment standpoint? So for founders or people who are building uh, in the crypto ecosystem, uh, what, what kind of what are you looking for, both from a thematic standpoint and also from like a stage of uh, the company or the project? Yeah, uh, we're seed and series A investors. Um, we'll do tokens,
1: we'll do crypto networks, we'll do hybrid, we'll do equity. So we kind of do everything. But our sweet spot is like, you know, a couple of people and an idea um, and and maybe a prototype because uh, we're, we're builders and we kind of know how to take, we've seen a lot of companies inside crypto and outside um, go from from nothing to something to, you know, a couple of billion dollars to an IPO. Like we've seen that whole life cycle. Um, and, and so in the earliest stages where we can be the most helpful and that's where we add the most value. So that's where we focus. Um, you know, in terms of sectors and stuff, it goes back to kind of what we were talking about before. Like there's a bunch of stuff that that we have conviction on, things like know, DeFi uh, and decentralized infrastructure. Frankly, um, we think it will happen. Um, but the stuff that gets us really excited is like when you meet with a founder and you walk out of the meeting saying, "Well, I went into the meeting believing X, and I walked out of the meeting believing not X." Like that person actually turned upside down. Like what I think about the world. That's the kind of person that you you just bet on. You're just like, okay, like I had some long held belief about the world, and you actually changed that. Um, you found something, you figured out something that's true about the world that most people think is not true. Um, and when you find somebody like that, you're just like, okay, take all my money. Uh, and that doesn't happen that often, but those are the people that like we love working with. It's just like, you find one of those people and you're just like, cool, take all my money.
0: I love it. That that is a fantastic thesis. Uh, all right. I got three questions for you and then you'll get to ask me one to finish up. The first is what's the most important book you've ever read?
1: Oh, we did this before. It's still the Bible.
0: Second question is a, a new one. What is your sleep routine? Our friends over at Eight Sleep have officially sponsored this question now because they know I'm a big sleep nut and I try to get at least eight, if not nine hours a night. What, uh, what, what would you say is your sleep routine? Uh, I would say my sleep routine is terrible.
1: I don't have one. Um, we,
0: have, uh, we, have, we have
1: a little baby and so I don't get it. I don't get it. My sleep routine is terrible. Uh, how, I wish I had a routine. How old
0: is the baby? Uh, he's eight months old now. So he's starting to settle in. Okay, so so here's the uh, the three answers that I get. One is I work too much. Two yeah. is uh, I'm religious about my sleep, and I already have an eight sleep, and it's amazing. Uh, or yeah. three is I have a young child. And whenever yeah. somebody says I have a young child, it's immediately known. Just like there is no sleep schedule. It's horrible. Yeah. You're lucky yeah. that I showed up here and yeah. like showered before I came. <laughs>
1: yeah. No. It's it's uh, it's hard, but it's it's wonderful in all sorts of other ways. A plus plus. Like would recommend. Everybody should have children. It's great
0: uh last question is uh aliens are you still believing are we do we have any change of opinion uh from a galactic federation or whatever other crazy ufo stuff that's uh starting to come out i'm still a believer i don't know have you been tracking like the david Faber stuff with like tic tac and
1: and gimbal and all that stuff and then uh the uo, uo mama which was like the harvard guys convinced it was a spaceship you been tracking all this
0: Yes. People naturally send me everything. Uh, And so all all the things you just mentioned. Yes. The one that I recently saw that I have not looked at yet is uh, I guess Rogan had some guy on who claims that he might have been abducted by a UFO or something. Oh, really? And supposedly from what I gleaned again, I I didn't listen yet. But what I saw online was uh, he and his friends went into the woods. There's this big white light something happened. He basically blacked out. He came to many days later, his friends ran away. They've all taken polygraph tests like multiple times throughout the years. And they all have the exact same story and they all pass the polygraphs every time. Uh, And so like, I'll have to listen to kind of all the details, but like, you know, if that stuff starts to happen where it's like, you know, same story for 20 years, polygraphs are passed. Like, I don't know, man, it's uh, you start to wonder, you know,
1: what's really going Uh on have you um have you heard of uh, you know the betty and and uh barney hill abduction from the 1960s it was like 1964 or something it's like yeah, really it a really famous that. one yeah so it's um it was like the first modern uh ufo abduction that kind of like went into the press and so it's like the first okay. modern one but it turns out um that guy's granddaughter is an mma fighter um and so she's like just a super interesting person so if you want a guest to like talk about like alien stuff, but also is just like a super interesting person. She's
0: like a legit MMA fighter, too. be like, my grandfather got abducted by aliens and now I beat people up in the ring. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's super interesting. Cause I just saw, I just saw her tweeting about it um, a couple of days ago. And she, she I think she's going to do like some, she's she's going to talk about her grandparents or something and all the stories that they told her about this stuff.
0: That's correct. Okay. I'll definitely go check that out. Uh, you get asked me one question to finish up what you got for me. Uh, what are you most looking forward to in 2021? Getting back to, and I'll put in air quotes, normal, like just, you know, kind of getting vaccines done, masks, open up the businesses, just, just get back to the closest semblance we possibly can of normal. You know, you yeah. know, many people will debate, like, I don't know if we ever lived in a normal world. So like, are we, you know, where are we going yeah. back to? Uh, but, yeah. but just, I think a lot of the, the additional obstacles and hardships that people are facing, like just get over that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it will be nice to get back to normal, whatever that is now, the new normal. For sure. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or find out more about electric?
1: Yeah, just uh, follow me on Twitter Adam of each electrics pretty easy to find us electric capital.com. Awesome. Man. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I'll to do it again in the future. Yeah, the board.